Good morning, everyone. Glad you're here. Glad we have this opportunity to worship our God this morning. And I actually wanted to uh, say something about uh, the reading that Michael had this morning in Deuteronomy, not Deuteronomy, but Leviticus 25, because it pertains a lot to the sermon that is going on, as well as Luke chapter 4. So hopefully um, those things will make sense, and maybe some of the things that the laws that seemed kind of tedious may make sense and connect to what we are talking about this morning. What I want to do is talk about this concept of jubilee, because this is a very crucial aspect to Christianity today. And I bet many of us in this room are saying, what? What does Jubilee have anything to do with Christianity? I'm telling you, it's fundamental to the whole gospel message. And I'm hoping that you'll get to see such a beautiful, beautiful word that may be part of your vernacular going forward. So that said, imagine a world, think utopia, where people don't take advantage of each other versus a world where... People are taking advantage of one another. It's a world that we are very familiar with. Or imagine a world where there's equality rather than inequality, right? There may be a sense in which there may be what what I would refer to as innocent inequality, right? Like right now, we have rain here, but someplace else may be going through a drought, right? There's nothing wrong about that. It's just, it's what it is. Um, You happen to be... it's interesting, I, I actually was looking up an old, what I called a frenemy of mine. We used to, uh, our teams used to wrestle against each other in high school, and then he went on to wrestle um, for Dan Gable. Well, I was looking it up recently and, and found out about him and how he had started a company that dealt with the internet before the internet was. And I thought, how cool is that, right? And so... Innocent, in, um, innocent inequality where one person just is able to do really, really well and others are working hard and maybe they won't do as well. But nothing wrong about that. But then it turns, in some cases, because of the flesh, into oppression where the wealthier continue to get wealthy, but it's because they suppress those that aren't as wealthy. That's what happens all over the world. Or where one's poverty, poverty turns into generational impoverishment. Right? So in, in our country, you know, the, the mindset is you work hard, you can do well. Well, there's a lot of hard workers, generation after generation, that financially speaking, just don't do well, for whatever the reasons may be. And of course, we have the success stories from a financial standpoint where people who come out of poverty and do very well for themselves, right? In contrast to maybe other systems that deal with finances. So this is the world that we live in, and and we can imagine that very, very easily versus the contrast that we can see. But now I want you to actually see. If you are on the short stick where you're the one that is not able to do well, that you don't, you are in the one that's in the drought, you are the one that's impoverished, and maybe it's been that way for generations, how would you feel? Because I'm looking at a ton of wealth in this room, right? Relatively speaking, I'm, and I'm comparing you to the rest of the world, not just here in the United States. I mean, in the United States, there's a lot of wealth right here in this room because we're in Williamson County, right? But when you go outside of this county, go to other parts of Tennessee, very, very different. There's a lot of poverty still. Go to other states, 
and places within each state where they feel like they got the short end of the stick, right? They don't have the luxury of Williamson County Schools, right? They have to go to, I'm not going to name the other counties now. <laughs> but you know what I'm saying? That's why people move to Williamson County. They have the benefits, the luxuries, and so on and so forth. But how would you feel if you're on the short end of the stick? So here's the thing. Go for an imagining what life is like to what life could be like, that utopia that I was referring to. And this is where the passage in Deuteronomy, I mean, in Leviticus 25, comes into play. It's a huge, fundamental passage that lays the groundwork for Christianity. And it lays the groundwork for what I'm going to talk about at the very end, taking some biblical principles. It's where you take all the inequalities of what's going on and, and press that easy button from Staples, and now everything is reset. Imagine if that was even possible. Whereupon... The poor get to have whatever their situation is reset so they're not faced with the challenges of poverty that they've been dealing with for a number of years or generations. Or where the wealthy do not get too wealthy. Think about that for a second. Where the wealthy don't get too wealthy because of that reset button. Or where because of the laws of the land, there is a sense of equality that is meant for all, the wealthy and the poor, equality for both sides. Imagine that. How many of you would want to be in that society? I'm going to raise my hand. Especially if you're on the short end of the stick. Right? But there are those that, that are doing well, and they would also want that too. There are some that are saying, no way. I kind of like it the way it is. I like having that bank account. I like all these things. I'm asking you, what if there was a community like this? And what I'm going to tell you is that there is a community just like this. It was called Israel. That passage Michael read in Leviticus 25 is the reset button that took place every 50 years in the nation of Israel. And if you've never taken the time to study the concept of the Jubilee... Please do it. Please read it again and again. But here's how I want you to read it. I want you to read it going back to Genesis. Start in Genesis and read about the Sabbath. That was just read for us this morning in Genesis chapter 2 when you read the first few verses where God made all things on the sixth day. He worked on the six days and then rested on the seventh. And if you'll notice, once he rested on the seventh, that is in Genesis 2, the story continues on where God and man are together. And there is this sense of equality that is present within the passage. It's not explicit, it is implicit, right? Implicit because what is explicit is, hey, man, I want you to have dominion over all the creation, but I want you to do it by reflecting who I am, right? God made man in his image according to his likeness to have dominion over all of creation on earth. And what you'll see is that inequality took place once sin entered this world. And so in Genesis chapter 4, you'll see whereupon one brother takes advantage of another and, of course, he is killed. And you'll see further inequality when you read further into Genesis chapter 4, going into Genesis chapter 5 with Laban and so on and so forth. And by the time you get through Genesis chapter 5, this whole world is full of inequality because sin exists so rampantly 
that the thoughts of man are evil continuously. So God does a reset. We call it the flood. God starts things out all over in a different setting, although a new creation. But you see the same pattern where inequality starts taking place because of sin. And that's why he calls Israel to himself and separates Israel, starting in Genesis 12, the whole story of the Israelites being separated from the rest of the nations. And you'll get to see what this community is supposed to look like where there is, in fact, an ideal for equality. And while we had all these laws and all these rules to bring about this sense of equality, guess what? (laughs) There was still inequality. Because man is involved. And because sin is involved. So here's the thing that I'm wanting us to see. I want us to see how this concept of seventh day rest, the concept of jubilee, plays into part for us today in Christianity. Right? So here's the concept. Every seven days, the Israelites would rest. And they would reflect upon their relationship with God. It was like a heartbeat. Right? You can count on a heartbeat, and every seven days, you're going to have that rest. Six days work, seventh day rest. Six days work, seventh day rest. No matter what, if you took that seventh day out of the equation, you know what man would more easily do, in my opinion, is think less of God. Because he's always doing his own thing. But that seventh day stops, and you're dependent upon God, because on that day, you don't even work. And the Israelites were even very... Um, angst about the situation, right? Because they would always be gathering every single day. But on the, on the sixth day, you gather twice as much. The seventh day, you lean upon God and know that that food from the day before was going to be enough to get you through the next day. And then again, when the first day of the week starts, you go back to gathering and harvesting. So every seven days, every seven days. And the same that was true for man became true for the creation of of this world. God had it so that after six years of laboring the land and the land laboring for men, on the seventh year, it would rest. And so every six years, after six years of work, just like a heartbeat, seventh year would be rest. But for those of you that are here and are saying, you know what, Mitch, I get what you're saying, but you know, I've never found a single passage in the Old Testament where the Israelites actually practiced a sabbatical year of rest for the land. And you'd be right. You'll not find a passage that actually shows that that's what they were doing. So what is important is that when you go through the Bible story and the Bible history, that while these seven-year wrestles were supposed to take place and did not take place, eventually through the prophets, they're saying the land will get its rest. In fact, they're going to get a bunch of Sabbath rests. Right? The 70 years of captivity were 70 years of rest for that land. Very, very telling part of the Bible story. But going back to this concept of jubilee then, you would have every seven years this rest, seven years rest, seven years rest, and seven times seven, 49 years. And every seven years, here's what would take place. If you are a slave because you sold yourself or you sold one of your children because you had to pay the bills, you'd be able to have that small little reset where you can gain back or redeem yourself or your family. But on the 50th year, check this out. On the 50th year, 
just like every seventh year on the Day of Atonement, there would be a big, big reset that takes place. And so this is the picture that you get. This is like the heartbeat taking place, this rhythm taking place, where every seven years you'll have those that are impoverished, they get to be bought back. Concept of redemption, right? But on the 50th year, after the 49th year, whereupon you get to take back um, your family that's been enslaved, if you will, by voluntary means because you have to pay your bills. But your land also gets to be purchased back on this year. Let that sink in. You need money, so you sell your property because it's much more valuable than even your land. Because to the Jew, land was everything. Inheritance is everything. So the land was so valuable That was their way of paying off their debts. And on this particular year, whether it was yourself or a kinsman of yours, your land, let alone your own family, can be bought back, potentially. And while there's other nuances to this, that was a huge, huge thing. And so on the the, um, seventh month, on the tenth day, the Day of Atonement, the ram's horn, which is the word that we get in English for jubilee, this ram's horn would blow very loudly. And there was this proclamation. It's almost like the sound of liberty that would take place. It'd be like music to your ears that finally I can bring my seven children back home. <laughs> right? I, I cannot imagine what it's like to have your children away from you where parents would, would let them work. And, of course, the law, just as read by Michael, was such where while you may have given yourself over as a slave, you were to be treated as a hired servant. That was a sense of equality, even when, when you would be giving yourself over as a slave. Liberty and remission would be proclaimed during that time. And it would be proclaimed all, every single Sabbath year, every sabbatical year, that is every seventh year, this proclaiming. And on the 50th year, again, this proclamation of liberty. Think about it. You're reading the law. And you're letting it be known, here are the teachings of the law, and all the poor, you get a reset. That playing field that gets more and more separated over time begins to level out. It's a beautiful picture that God had. No other society in the world had that, right? In fact, I would view that that this concept for us is very foreign, and in fact, in some cases, even questionable, I can even see some, even in this room, going, you're saying that the Bible's teaching socialism? I can imagine some people thinking that. This is not socialism, if you study on on the, the contrast of these systems. But what it is, is something that is showing up as equality, and it's one that is teaching the Israelites to have a mindset of justice, to have a mindset of equality among all the people of the community of God. And that is why when the Israelites are going to be going into captivity, right? And that's Isaiah. He's proclaiming, you guys have been stubborn. Here's what's going to happen to you. Here's what's going to happen to the, um, those of, of Judah. Go to back to um, Isaiah 61, because this is the passage that Jordan read for us out of Luke 4. And I want to reread the text, but I want to read it from the standpoint of the Israelites. So God is sending his people into captivity because of all their sins of, if we remember our Bible studies, injustice, inequality, what the rich did to the poor, right? The elites did to those who are not elite. All of that was proclaimed by the prophets. 
So they're going to send him, be sent into captivity. Then he's going to bring his people back. He says in verse 1 of Isaiah 61, the spirit of the Lord God, that is Yahweh Elohim, right? this specific God of all the gods, this God, the one who is the creator of the heavens and the earth, none like him, this spirit of his has come upon me. Because Yahweh, or the Lord, has anointed me to preach good tidings. To who? To the poor. He sent me to heal who? The brokenhearted. To proclaim liberty to whom? Captives. And the opening of the prison to those who are bound to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance. Why? Because of inequality. It's to comfort all who mourn, to console those who mourn in Zion, to give them beauty for their ashes, oil for their mourning, garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness that they may be called trees of righteousness. Go back to the garden and to that tree of life. The planting of the Lord that he, that God, may be glorified. Brethren, this is an absolutely crucial and most beautiful passage you can read to those who get it because they had the short end of the stick. Can you imagine just how beautiful those words are? So when you fast forward from that concept over to the time of of Christ, you get to really see the power and the impact when Jesus is beginning his ministry. Okay? So fast forward hundreds of years, and you get to Luke chapter 4. And remember, Jesus himself had gone out into the desert. He had been tempted by Satan, and now he's beginning to open up his ministry. And the very first words of his ministry come from Isaiah chapter 4. 61. I want you to read that again with me in the context that, that is given. Luke chapter 4, and I'll go back up just a little bit. Verse 14. Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit, just like Isaiah 61, right? He returns in the power of the Spirit and news of him being proclaimed. Think of all this is just associated with Isaiah 61. The news of him went throughout all the surrounding region. He taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. You should already know without reading anything what he would have been teaching. It's already implied in the text. But if that's not enough, Luke makes it explicit. So he comes to Nazareth, verse 16, where he had been brought up. And as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on on the Sabbath day. Think again, Sabbath day, and think about the possibility of what year this would have been, which Sabbath uh, year, possibly. And he stands up and he reads, because the book is handed over to him, and he reads out of the prophet Isaiah. And when he opens the book, he finds the place where it was written. I think he knew exactly where he was going. He says, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and to recover the sight of the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed and to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. 
It is accepted by a number of scholars that this particular year would have been the year of Jubilee. I've not been able to verify it personally, but a lot of the scholars believe this year when Jesus begins his ministry is the year of Jubilee. Imagine how impactful that would have been. How timely that would be for Luke in recounting this particular moment when he begins his ministry to refer to this as the favorable year of the Lord. And even if it is not the year of liberty, it is exactly what would be on the minds of every single Jew when they hear this passage read. Because this passage that was going back to Isaiah 61 goes back to Leviticus 25. So the Jews who knew their scriptures would automatically make these associations. When he closes the book, he gives it back to the attendant, sits down, and then all the eyes were, that were in the synagogue were fixed on him because they know this passage. And then when he says, today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing, it was like a mic drop. Absolutely stunning. And so all bore witness to him and marveled at the gracious words which proceeded out of his mouth. Now, every good story always has the naysayers, right? You have all the Star Wars lovers that love this last episode, and then you got the naysayers like, no, they just messed it up. <laughs> That's what you have. Every time something good is proclaimed, someone else can be the lemon in that lemonade. And I'm going to tell you why it's all bad. And that is why some began to say, well, is this not Joseph's son? I don't know about him. Jesus goes on and says, you surely will say this proverb to me. Physician, instead of healing the brokenhearted and the oppressed and the captives, heal yourself, physician. Whatever we have heard done in Capernaum, do in your own country. And he goes on and explains how there are going to be those that will not receive this year of Jubilee. And this year of Jubilee that he takes from this level of, of equality and brings it to a whole new level. Because he's talking about everyone's souls. And he's talking about the idea of what this new kingdom is going to be likened unto. And how people in this kingdom are going to live. That's the beginning of this ministry of Jesus that he's ushering in. It's this utopic picture of what the new heaven and new earth will look like. It's a beautiful picture. That's what he's proclaiming when he, when he proclaims good news and good tidings. And so when we're looking at this message of Jesus, you can see him saying, you know, I'm bringing to liberty the poor, brokenhearted, the captive, the blind, the oppressed. And that is why this is the favorable year of the Lord. So imagine what happens when you take those who are poor those who are blind, those who are oppressed, and brings them into this kingdom and how they are going to fulfill what Michael read out of Leviticus 25. Here's how I want you to treat your neighbor. You've got this newfound freedom. What are you going to do with it? Are you going to be like the people of the old, of the flesh, and take advantage of the poor, or are you going to help them out? I'll say this, Phil, that prayer that you led this morning was by far in my own heart just the most impactful prayer I've heard you. That's how much I appreciated the prayer this morning. Because if you remember Phil's words, it was how we, with all that we have, can help those who don't have. Pure and undefiled religion. What is it? 
James 1.27, we use it a lot when we talk about institutionalism, and yet that passage is what? Help those who are in need. Very explicit. To you who have and knows to do good and does not, to him it is, it's sin. So what do we do? All these passages that we are seeing here, we see it play out biblically. And biblically, I'll show you. So go to Galatians chapter 5. And I want us to read the text here in Galatians chapter 5 and get a sense of what is being spoken of because there's a lot of jubilee language in the New Testament. This this concept of jubilee, this concept of of the rest and what takes place in this relationship when man and God are in harmony and at rest. Here's how he lives. So in Galatians chapter 5, let me get over to Galatians 5. The Apostle Paul is saying, I don't want you to walk according to the flesh, but I want you to walk according to the spirit. I want you to walk according to to wisdom. And by doing so, you get to see the true understanding of what liberty is like. So he says in verse 1, after he talks about the contrast between the son of promise and the son of the flesh, right? Chapter 4, right? So Isaac and... um, Jacob, if I'm not mistaken. So you have this right here, this contrast. And then in chapter 5, verse 1, he says, Stand fast, therefore, in what? In the liberty by which Christ made us free. Goes right back to the beginning of his ministry. And the concept that we've been set free. Those who are poor, naked, meek, and humble, right? Hungering and thirsting after righteousness. All of the blessings that come, now we're set free. He says, do not be again entangled in that yoke of bondage. In that yoke of sin, whereupon everything breaks down and it's every man for himself. Instead, you're holding up everyone. Where every joint supplies what it can to the building up of the body, Ephesians 4 verse 16. That's the picture that is given here. That's this liberty, or as, as my uh, heading in, I don't know, I think, what do I have? <laughs> New King James. Christian liberty as a heading part of this paragraph. That's this concept that he wants us to have. And so this message of Jesus is proclaimed by his disciples as well as they go on teaching about what the true Israelites are, the true Christian looks like. Right? So uh, Romans 3, verse 27. It is not the Jew who is one outwardly. Like you, you get circumcised on the eighth day, and you can show that, hey, I'm a Jew. Look at my ethnicity. It's the one who is inwardly in the heart. He is the true Jew. He is the one that is actually out of his own heart practicing what you can read of in Leviticus 25, let alone the rest of the law of Moses. This is what is exemplified in the New Testament in Christ in which we have found our liberty, right? And so this is daily those who are practicing it. And that is why the last few weeks when I was mentioning to you out of Acts chapter 2, about a month ago we were reading out of Acts 2, and looking at the church, verses 42 through 47, and how the church had all things in common, not because there was some law that God says, you know, you have to do this and you have to do that. It was a law written in their hearts, that by virtue of God giving them liberty in the name of Jesus Christ, here's how they lived. Out of great thanksgiving, they had all things in common. Not because it was forced upon them, but because of that law written in their heart. And what they did then is understand that they had liberty that was given to them, this idea of jubilee, 
that we can read of in Leviticus 25, we can read of in Isaiah chapter 61, and practice it in a way that is understood in the context of what we call New Testament Christianity. Well, let's see it practiced then. In verse 7 of Galatians 5, you ran well, Christian. Who hindered you from obeying the truth, Christian? This persuasion does not come from him who calls you. In fact, it's the opposite. He says, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. I have confidence you in the Lord that you will have no other mind. You have to have this certain kind of mind of the freedom that you have in Christ that it exemplifies a lifestyle matching that freedom in Christ. He continues on and says in verse 13, For you, brethren, have been called to liberty. Only don't use your liberty, don't use your freedom as an opportunity to the flesh or for the flesh. It's like you're going to take this freedom that you have. You've been brought up from the, the depths of despair, if I can say it that way. And then now here you are. What are you going to do? You're going to put other people aside and push them down? That's the flesh. That's the old man. The one that has liberty, the one that has true jubilee, where the ram's horn has been blown and proclamation has been made, good tidings for all. Now how do you treat one another? The way you treat one another is very clear. Verse 14, for all the law is fulfilled in one word, even in this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. What does it look like? Go back to Acts 2, Acts 3, Acts 4. But if you bite and devour one another, beware lest you be consumed by one another. The very thing that destroys is sin. Whereupon we bring about inequality because of the flesh. And therefore he says, and this is why this passage means so much in verse 16 following, a passage that we quote often when we contrast the works of the flesh with those who walk in the spirit. It's because of this passage here in, in chapter 5, verses 1 following, where we've been brought into this liberty, so behave as those of children of freedom. Behave like the true Israelites. He says, when you walk in the Spirit, you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. They war against each other. When you walk in the Spirit, you bear fruit according to the Spirit. There's evidence of the new kingdom in your life. And that's what we're talking about. That's what this means for us when we live this way. So what does it mean for us then as we go forward in 2020? I want you to, to think about this. I want you to think about the whole intention of this kingdom that God created from the very beginning. Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2. What was it like? How would people live? I think I had recent conversations. I forget Oh, I forget who it was earlier this week. We're talking about this concept. What happened before commerce actually took place in the world? Just people helping each other. You know, I know computers. You know how to fix a toilet, right? I can do this for you. You can do that for me, and we can help each other. It's an amazing concept that is so foreign to us today because everything about our lives is centered around commerce, and how we can get ahead individually, right? Did I choose the best stock? Did I have the best job? Do I go to the right college, the right degree? All of these things from a financial standpoint versus what we see 
read in Isaiah 61, what we see read in Leviticus 25, what we see scripturally read in Galatians 5 following or Acts chapter 2 and many other passages. So in Isaiah chapter 1, here's the picture of this kingdom that we can see in the New Testament teachings as well. To those who were struggling because of the flesh, Isaiah begins his quote-unquote dissertation, if you will, and says, wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. In other words, as much as depends upon you and the choices that you make, do this. Remove the evil from your deeds. That is, remove of your deeds from my sight this evil. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Reprove the ruthless. Defend the orphan. Plead for the widow. It is a teaching that could have gone on and on and on. It is a picture of beautiful, beautiful equality in the kingdom that God has set up. So just as was mentioned by Paul during the Lord's Supper talk, you know, to do better with your life, with your walk with God, that's always the goal. And it's just a natural tendency as a tradition. I don't know if it's all over the world, but I know in, in a lot of places at the end of a given year, you, you look for new hope. Jubilee. And with new hope, you typically have resolutions. You are resolved to saying, okay, here's how I want to live. I don't want to live this old way, cutthroat. I want to live this way. Lift someone up that is struggling. You'll see how beautiful that is. I'm going to share this last thing and then I'll be done. Speaking of lifting someone up and seeing how that someone has gone and done now is just beautiful. Let me close by talking about Will for just a minute. Will Brown. He used to worship with us for a few years, right? Will Brown, who, for all intents and purposes, is on the short end of the stick. Will Brown, who, because of the short end of the stick, gets incarcerated, becomes homeless. But by the grace of God, we get to enjoy Will Brown for a few years. He labors with us, and we learn how to grow with him. Well, recently, because of the, where, the location of where he lives, good hour drive uh, southwest from here, right, in Centerville or in that area, he starts worshiping with the saints at Hilltop in that area in, in Centerville. He's asked to, be, to preach. Will Brown. If you know Will, you're like, Will preaching? That's who we're talking about. Yes. And after he gets done, he gets asked to preach a second time. Can you imagine how Will feels? Feels needed. He feels loved. And he, in turn, just this past week or two, was able to help another brother in Christ in need. Will Brown, who we've been helping in his need, is helping someone in his need. Imagine how contagious this gets. How we lift each other up. Through all the uniqueness of every single soul that takes place, for all the talents that we have, and even the talents that are hidden to our own eyes that others have, that we cannot even see, this idea of this justice and equality is brought out because our minds are transformed, our hearts are transformed. And every day we are experiencing this concept of jubilee that God had given to the Israelites once every 50 years. 
if there's any type of enslavement that we have, Romans chapter 6 tells us we are slaves to righteousness. But it is in Christ, and his burden is light, we are told in Matthew eleven twenty eight, 28. Because we have this freedom that is only found in him. It's a freedom that this world cannot touch. Cannot touch. Because it's ours for eternity. That's the inheritance that we have. So when you think about this concept of wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, what we're talking about in the invitation of the sermon is this very concept of being washed. Not the removal of flesh, but the answer of a good conscience. The one that believes that Jesus is the one that brings me this proclamation of good news, that I can have freedom found only in him. That's what we're talking about. And if you truly believe that Jesus is the Christ who died for your sins to give you this liberty, to give you this freedom, he invites you into this kingdom where through all the sinful men and women that make up the body of Christ that he purchases by his blood and transforms by the renewing of minds, we get to grow together to become more and more and more like him. Beautiful invitation. By the way, just an FYI, this is the kingdom of eternity. It's a beautiful kingdom. No one has to worry about whether they're going to be taken advantage of because that's not who exists in the kingdom. It's one that is, in fact, utopic. It's one that God has desired for us from the very beginning. And it can be yours. If you want to come into this kingdom, the invitation is for you to turn away from the way you've lived to the way God wants you to live, the way that we see here in Scripture. Truly, truly is a jubilee. And brethren, if you need prayers, by all means, this is why we pray for each other, so we can have this sense of equality, a sense where justice can prevail, a sense of good tidings on behalf of those who pray for you. So the invitation is yours. Just together, we stand and sing this song.